as people get more and more drunk, they seem to learn more and more about the law. Yes, they do. And so <laughs> I'm going to show you. That, that theme on that one was no good deed ever goes unpunished, does it? My concept is you have a patient, a primary, and an ED doctor. They form a triangle. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, all you ER docs and docettes out there, it's Greg Henry, Rick Bucata, and as a special guest this month, Greg Moore. We're coming to you uh, here with Risk Management Monthly. Rick, would you like to tell everybody about Greg? I mean, Greg's been on the program once before, but go ahead, give him the background. Well, Greg was uh, on the program when he had done a lecture at um, ASAP. Uh, I think it was a year ago, wasn't it, Greg? Yes. And then we basically asked you to kind of come in and um, repeat uh, the key points of that talk. This time, it's a little different. You've written a paper that got published in the Journal of Emergency Medicine this year entitled Liability of Emergency Physicians for Studies Ordered in the Emergency Department, Court Cases, and Legal Defense. And I found it uh, very interesting. And we do know and we've talked about it many times about you know having a, a system to uh, make sure that delayed X-ray reports get you know handled and those kinds of things. But your uh, series of cases is much broader than just just that. So I wanted to welcome you, you aboard. You're at uh, Madigan uh, Army Medical Center up there in Tacoma. I guess it's raining today, isn't it? And- Actually, it's sunny. We have <laughs> summer. Summer is one day in Tacoma, and we're having it today. Oh, my God. We got him on his one day of summer. Terrific. <laughs> yeah, you should be outside. You shouldn't be doing this. But in any case, <laughs> it might not be good for you because, you know, that vitamin D, you might get toxic or something like that. <laughs> but in any case, um, Greg, you uh, work with the military as a civilian. And I, w- I wanted to acknowledge two other physicians who work up there in who are civilians but work in the residency there, uh, Joe Littner and uh, Maria Hugie. And the reason I... I wanted to acknowledge them. First of all, they, they've been uh, friends for a long time, but they go to our Whistler course every year religiously, and um, they generally bring with them, because they're very generous people, they bring with them a resident from uh, your program. And so I wanted to give them a shout-out and, and uh, thank them for their loyalty and um, their ongoing interest in uh, our endeavors. And, Greg, you have a you have a – who's your boss? My boss is uh, he's uh, Colonel Physician uh, David Delagostina. And uh, what do you think of him? Well, I just uh, – yeah. <laughs> uh, he's actually going to be leaving the Army soon because he heard the call of the private world. And uh, I wanted to take this time to publicly just say how much I appreciate him for you know creating the environment that he has at Madigan. and It's really allowed me to flourish, and uh, I'm going to miss him. Maria and uh, – Hugie and Joe Littner, by the way, I will endorse them too. They they are wonderful people, great physicians. Well, that's good. I mean, um, you know, I have to start out saying something nice. However, it's time to get into the nitty gritty of your paper. When you do, you want to give us some of those cases and uh, kind of summarize the discussion that was in that paper because I thought it was pretty interesting in terms of um, mitigating problems. But we first of all would like to avoid the problems that you talk, you will talk about mitigating. So let's, yeah. let's Greg, begin. Greg actually uh, has written down the obvious, which is all of us who do medical legal work 
we we watch this every single day, and yet if you talk to uh, docs who are practicing not into it, they they're just not aware of what's going on. Yeah, I, what motivated me to to do this paper was just seeing over and over the same thing happen, and big awards being paid out or big settlements. So it's kind of I thought, well, I'll put this out there to share and just uh, raise sensitivity. Um, another thing that got me going on it is we started ordering these KUBs for uh, CTs for stones and almost invariably on them we get some extra little ditzel that needs to be followed up on and uh, that made me want to highlight this issue but um, how about if I start with a case would that be yeah let's do it and I should also mention that you are an MD JD and I think that that uh, should be acknowledged for sure okay thanks yeah, the first like the first case in the paper is a middle-aged guy uh, that comes to the emergency department with palpitations and chest pain. Of course, he gets a chest X-ray along the way, and he's in the diagnosis is bronchitis, and he's put out on Cipro. And a few days later, there's a radiology overread that uh, says there's a little mass in the left lung, and they recommend a follow-up X-ray. Uh, of course, they send that report to the emergency physician on duty, who happened to be the same physician that did the original diagnosis, and he took the report according to protocol and initialed it and ordered that that report be faxed to the primary physician, and that faxing never occurred. Of course, the patient uh, went on later to develop a, a bad uh, problems with cancer and then sues the physician. Um, this case was interesting in the fact that there was a protocol the physician was supposed to follow, and they followed it. And um, so the court did not hold that physician liable for failing to complete the circle there, but they did hold their employer emergency medicine group responsible, and they awarded the plaintiff $20 million in this case. Wow. $20 million? Are they yes. collectible for that, Greg? Well, that, yeah, that I guess would be a whole different topic of these super large awards and, and what happens. Well, um, let me just tell you that there was one uh, on this exact same issue uh, called uh, Patricia Wise for the estate of Carolyn Champlin, uh, which took place in Erie, Pennsylvania. This was the exact same fact set, and that had to do with we've gotten a, two x-rays now on a guy – question this, question that, and nobody follows up on it. But it's practically a bargain. Uh, the settlement in that case was $1.8 million, uh, and they were um, happy to get away with that. The, the problem is it's, it's bold face right off the top, malpractice. Yeah, yeah Let's go through a, a, a cluster of these cases and see what the common thread is. So yeah, I'll do. I'll actually break them out in a little category. So there you have a, a follow-up of an X-ray that was a problem. Here's another thing that we get in the emergency department a, a lot. A, a patient came in with an allergic type reaction, and he got some Benadryl or whatever, and and it was just not an issue. But he's sitting there and he goes, "Hey doc, you know, I, I've been wanting to get my prostate level checked, or I don't know if you have people that'll say, hey, can you check my cholesterol level while I'm here? Then I don't have to go into a lab and get it drawn. And of course, you want to be a nice guy. So in this case, they did draw the prostate level and they were abnormally high. 
And so they sent a letter to the patient saying your prostate level was high. Who but was it didn't they, really, Greg? Uh, the who, uh, who the group, the emergency department itself actually Okay. Uh, sent a letter out, said your prostate level was high, but they didn't really say what to do. And um, so he didn't act on it. And uh, he later develops prostate cancer and uh, suffered for about a year and died about five years later and then sued basically saying, yes, you did give me the result, but you didn't tell me what to do with it. And uh, the jury had a verdict for the plaintiff. They held the ED physician liable, and uh, I don't know how much that was. It was a confidential settlement. Let me let me throw one more at you that's a common theme and um, – well, that that theme on that one was no good deed ever goes unpunished, does it? Right, <laughs> yeah. right. I mean, don't you have people say, "Hey, can you check my cholesterol level?" Or yeah, I just want a pregnancy test. Exactly, exactly. And then I say the other kind of third. So, so one is X-rays. Two is getting some labs that people would like to have for convenience. And then a third one is um, cultures. And uh, I have a case here of a 60-year-old. She had abdominal pain and a headache, and she got a bunch of tests. And after three hours, she felt great and wanted to go home, and her diagnosis was dehydration and fever. And the next day, four of four blood cultures were positive for gram-negatives. And um, so those patients were – those labs were put in the follow-up folder, and 12 hours later, the ED doc looked at it and said, these are probably spurious uh, contaminants. <laughs> And said, let's wait for the final results. And, of course, in the meantime, the patient got really sick and uh, went to another hospital and died from sepsis. Of course, there's a suit. You didn't follow up my cultures. You didn't call me. And that one had a jury verdict for $2.7 million. So cultures, labs, and x-rays are, are critical. Rick, you want to jump in here? Yeah, you know um – I've seen all of these things, and not that that I they've resulted in lawsuits, but you know, being an ER director for twenty five years, it's like there but the grace of God kind of thing because I'm sure it happens all the time. It also happens a lot in primary care, particularly when people are getting um, preoperative workups where they're getting tests that they don't need, and um, they wind up doing a preoperative chest X-ray and. You just hear case after case after case where the x-ray is sent and somebody at the office files it and, it, and nobody pays attention. So the, th- the theme is the same. And, I, and I, one, one of the questions I have um, to, the, to Greg's, Greg, Greg Square is, um, is it the obligation primarily to send it to the patient or, um, or to the physician? Or I personally think it should go to both. But um, what, do you, what, what do you think about these processes? Well, I, here's how I, my concept is you have a patient, a primary, and the ED doc, and they form a triangle. And if you close that triangle with lines, then you're golden. But really, as the ED doc, you can only do two-thirds of that. You can contact the primary and the patient. And if you do both of those, you have a much stronger leg to stand on. Um, but you definitely want to do one or the other. And then when you do those, a, a key is documentation. Um, a lot of times with patients, sometimes you'll get these x-ray reads right while they're there. You do the KUB for stone. They say, hey, there's a little mass on the adrenal. Um, then I will actually put it right in the discharge instructions. You have a little mass on your adrenal. You need to get this followed up. Um, 
and then it's right there and, and you're protected. Uh, some if, if you do what Greg, if you do what Greg just said, I've never seen a case. It's it's all of these things that sort of float back, and you're busy working, and something comes in front of you when when it's your patient that you've seen that you know there's a variance. Uh, I don't know about your uh, case studies, Greg, but I've never seen a case where one of those was sued on. Right. And, and then we'll go back to that prostate case. In that case, if you're going to order something and you think there's a good chance you're not going to see it or it might not get back to you, you can kind of preemptory strike and protect yourself by in the discharge saying, follow up on your prostate level with your physician. And if you do, then you're going to give yourself a chance at a defense called contributory negligence. And that's a legal concept where the patient is part of their own problem. For instance, if you have a diabetic, you prescribe them insulin, they don't take it, then they die of DKA, you're going to have this defense of contributory negligence. The patient brought it on themselves. And that's what you can do when you do these discharge instructions that say, hey, be sure and get this taken care of or follow up on this. Yeah, I think that's that's the danger in all of this is, again, uh, going back to a drum we've beaten on this show forever, you don't ask questions you don't want to know the answer to. If you actually want to know the answer and, and there's a reasonable probability it will be a bad answer, you've got to have some system that handles it. And this, this idea of assuming that a blood culture back is spurious when it's in four bottles, I mean, that doesn't sound right to me. And uh, to, to say that we're going to wait another 12 hours, how would you like to hear the, the plaintiff's counsel say to the jury, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, why don't we sit here for 12 hours and count out each one of the billions of bacteria that are now eating this person up. It's just not the show you want to see go on at trial. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I don't, you know, I've been around a while, a little bit crusty, and, uh, you know, MRSA has blossomed. And in the old days, I'd get a culture result where one of the bottles had staff. You'd go, oh, that's just a contaminant. But in the age of MRSA, you better be careful and get a hold of those people. Absolutely. The the other thing is, um, I, I guess I'm enough of a believer that if it can go wrong, it will go wrong. Something comes back like that. I don't want to send it to the attending. I want him on the phone. Um, and, I want to hear what he's going to do about it. And I'm going to write down, spoke with Dr. So-and-so this date, this time, because it, it, things get sent to private physicians' offices, and you do not know what his uh, uh, ancillary staff does with these findings. Guys, let's drill down a little bit more to the specifics that we can talk about to try to limit uh, these risks. Uh, I read somewhere just recently that something like 8% of CAT scans, abdominal CAT scans, will have a incidental finding that uh, will generate the necessity to do something or other the the whole thrust of that was doing doing tests that generate you know other findings creates a domino effect of okay now what do we do about this other finding how aggressive do we need to be you know what tests need to be done if anything those tests are associated with risks but 
incidentally, the number is you know fairly large. That's one out of 12. One of the things I personally think that uh, helps mitigate these risks is to have the patient call back for the results of their X test. That puts the burden on them that within, you know, for a culture, call back in two days for the results of your culture. Um, and I think that's one of the techniques that you can use to put some of the responsibility back on the patients, that it doesn't have to be solely on their uh, on their shoulders, but I think it serves as a little safety net underneath you when you put that on the aftercare instructions. One of the things I must tell you is that I'm very uncomfortable, frankly, delegating these tasks to ER clerks or nurses who can easily be distracted, oh, I forgot to do it, because I've seen that happen uh, many times over the years, and it's not that they're sloppy, they're just well-intended, but the ER has so many distractions that that unless you're very careful, um, you could easily make a mistake. One of the other things that I think is um, uh, important to do is, and Greg, we've talked about this before, is some people have a very, very, very rigid system in terms of a logbook that they chart, who they called, when they called. And here's one other thing I think ought to be in those logs. If, in fact, you call somebody up on the phone and it's like the wrong number or something like that, we often think that people actively tried to uh, deceive us. They didn't want to know where to send the bill, that kind of thing. But I think that, you know, if you were to talk to a, a lay jury, they would say, well, what would you do if you got a wrong number? The answer was you would call 411 and say, can you give me the number of such and such a person? That would be a reasonable thing to do. And frankly, on the form that we developed, if you got a wrong number, you were required to call 411, document that you did that so that you could say, I did something reasonable to attempt to find out what this person's number is because the staff could have just as easily made a mistake when they transcribed that number down onto the chart. Rick, we've, done, we've gone to the point where, uh, with, particularly with kids, if we got back a, um, a culture, and by the way, most of those are false as well, but we got back a culture, the phone number was not correct, and I don't want to judge on this I don't care if our, our staff took down, they inverted two numbers, whatever it is. I don't care. There's only one thing I want, to contact the family. So when we can't find a phone number that way, we've contacted the police to go out to the address listed. And, of course, I note that in the chart. But I've, I've probably at least a half dozen times in my career in Ypsilanti, Michigan, uh, sent out the police uh, to, to addresses, and they were very good about doing that. And I, I know of at least one case where a kid with meningitis was probably saved that way. That's me. Um, boy, you, you, you spur a lot of uh, ideas in my head. I, I think, Rick, that 411 idea is just awesome and uh, amazing. I've never heard of that, and I think that's a great idea. As far as Greg, one of the classic legal cases from 1970 of the contributory negligence was a was a wrong address, wrong phone number case with a lady that uh, – it wasn't an ER case. Uh, got a pap smear. It showed cancer. Uh, there was the wrong number, wrong address. They tried to get a hold of her, and um, in the end, the physician got off because she had provided the wrong information. Um, one of the things, again, Rick, what you're saying is – 
uh, if something's going to come back around a time when I'm going to be on a shift, I actually would tell the patient to call me. Like if I know I'm working in two days and a certain test will be back by then, I will say, call me. On their discharge, I will say, call me Tuesday between 3 and 11. And you really have shifted the burden on them if something gets missed. The, the last point I'll make is uh, – Liability. Who is going to be liable? Now, if, if your group says we will take care of culture follow-ups and here's our plan, uh, you better do it. You better follow your plan. If you've got a protocol and it doesn't get done, it's a slam dunk uh, payout. Sometimes some places will have the plan is the nurse gets the cultures and the nurse calls back the patient. The nurse does this. Then they're under the umbrella of the hospital and you as a physician are much less likely to answer for mistakes. Uh, you talked about clerks and so forth. If if the physician is not actually in that protocol, uh, it's unlikely they can become after. Right. Pretty There's- much uh, these systems with nurses uh, checking cultures, labs, other things, they usually have to take that before they make the call to a physician and ask and ask the question, do I chase this one? Don't I chase one? What do I do with a Smorls nodule on a on a lobe on a back X-ray? Well, that's that's an incidental finding. You don't have to chase that one down. But I but it's it's pretty rare when the hospital's not involved to some degree in these things. And and I'll just tell you, I'm I'm to the point now where I don't want a lot of things that people have to. That, that, that float off into nothingness. I don't like sending uh, bulk laboratory studies uh, hoping that it'll get to their doctor. I think in general, um, if they're sick, we need to take care of it. They can do other things with their family doc. I just don't like a number appearing floating in cyberspace that can come home to, to haunt me. You know, I think that there's also this issue of I'm concerned about the clerks and the nurses in the ER integrating these follow-ups into their normal work. And I'm also concerned about the the clerks at the doctor's office kind of thing. And sometimes there there's not a sense of the um, um, severity of the, uh, the of the results or the clinical importance of the results. And so I think that I would much rather just take two minutes out and, and call the doctor and, and tell them the blood culture was positive because those are serious allegations when you're talking about significant things like that. Even though probably in kids, for every one positive, true positive, there's five false positives. And it's kind of one of those things where another way to avoid this problem is to stop doing these nutty tests that don't necessarily change anything like uh, doing uh, urine cultures in, in a cystitis. Frankly, Rick, you, don't need, you don't need it. You know, it's like it's ridiculous to do that. It means we know t- that. But the point is, you've done it now. What you can't do is half do it. Well, my problem is, is some of your colleagues think that it's routine to order urine culture for a cystitis. And they take a $100 dollar di- uh, diagnosis and convert it into a $300 diagnosis. And oh, oh, what is it? It's, oh, it's, it's E. coli. Surprise, surprise. Yeah, right. Yes. <laughs> but what you, you know, what you say is, uh, and I think Greg said this many times, and the key across all these topics in malpractice is what you can prevent is, is so much easier than fighting it later. I mean, staying out of trouble 
uh, the, the amount of effort you put in making those two-minute phone calls is way better and more efficient than the months you're going to spend in court fighting it or years. A, a lot of people on this kind of topic too, it's one where they, they want to play the ostrich where if I bury my head uh, – you know what I don't know won't hurt me, but uh, both of you have highlighted that no, no, that's not necessarily the case. Well, well Greg, things- I, Greg, I want to know from your experience at looking at these cases, does it does it mirror mine that if you actually spoke to their doctor on the phone, I've never seen the emergency doctor a part of the case. I just, it, I at least it hasn't been sent my way. Uh, because I think the jury sort of understands if you've spoken to their doctor, you can't be responsible as the emergency doc to practice continuing medicine for everybody in the country. On that basis, we don't need any other specialties at all. Uh, Just as it's never come across my desk, if an emergency doc made the call and documented on the chart, I've never seen a case. No, you're completely, completely correct. You're, you're going to be fine if you do that. You know, you've got to realize that, like, also that juries are people, and the victim or whatever is uh, the plaintiff is a person, and they're going to kind of relate to the the attitude of, well, I'm the one that's involved. Somebody should have talked to me, and you know, because it's my body, my problem. How come they were all talking about me but not to me? Um, so if you can contact the patient, that's very powerful too. But getting their primary doctor to be involved is is really going to get you off the hook. Always. Yeah, I would agree that if I were to rank who to tell, and I had a choice of one, I would tell the patient. I would say your your culture has come back positive. We're concerned about that. You need to come back here, or if it's something more minor, you need to cut a hold of your your family doctor. And if you cannot get a hold of them. Please let us know so that you basically they started out as your patient and they still are your patient. And the idea of having a family doctor in the middle, I think, is is fine. But I think ultimately the obligation is not to the family doctor. I think the obligation is to the patient. One of the I, other- I think that's true, Rick. Our only problem from the ER is uh, actually getting a hold of those people. Well, you know, frankly, I can almost always find an attending on my staff. Uh, 24 hours a day, I can find those people. Uh, a lot of the people who've left us numbers, I just can't find as easily. Yeah, and I guess there's also the issue of, I'd be interested in both of your inputs about leaving messages on message machines in terms of, um, would it be just best to say, this is Dr. So-and-so calling, please call me back? Or this is Dr. So-and-so, and you have four out of four positive blood cultures. And, uh, you know, is it – and are there issues regarding confidentiality, those kinds of things, when you leave a message on a, a, a phone that you think is the patient? That's what they told you was. But you're honestly not all that sure because many of these message machines, you know, people are so weird. They don't want to tell you who you're calling. You know, they just yeah. tell you the phone number. Yeah, well, I've got a case on that. Okay, go ahead. Well, the case had to do with calling a family, um, calling a guy's house and saying, your gonorrhea culture is positive. You will be contacted by the health department. Now, his wife answered that phone or or picked up that message. Um, I think there are potential HIPAA violations in leaving 
uh, specific information on an answering machine. If it says, uh, please call uh, immediately to, to the emergency department, please call your own doctor, maybe you can get away with that. But this was an actual bit of information left about their gonorrhea culture. And, was, that uh, a, was that a professional golfer that we know? No, it was not, but it oh, certainly okay. could have been. It <laughs> okay. certainly could have been. It, it was somebody, by the way, from a family with substantial enough money that they wanted to pursue this uh, as, you know, because naturally there was a divorce that followed. There was an estrangement. Uh, it, uh, it was a messy case. The, I, my my cu- couple thoughts on that is uh, the way I've usually done that is I don't hesitate to leave a message. Um, I will say something like, this is Dr. Moore. You have a very important test I need to talk to you about. Um, so you've conveyed importance without a lot of detail. Uh, people talk about HIPAA. Uh, I, I personally don't worry about that. Courts are pretty supportive of doctors. If I went in a court and said, yes, I called the wrong number by mistake trying to help someone, uh, Juries aren't going to likely come after a doctor like that. They're going to go, "Oh my gosh, this doctor takes the time to call." You know, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, I think the, that's true. You know, the other thing I think that I've seen larger departments do, and I think that this is a really good idea, is to remove these calls from the active working staff and 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 give them to some administrative nurse who understands the consequences of this job and does it well and documents it according to a policy that's been developed by the emergency physicians and and the hospital or the nurses together so that uh, you're not involved in these distractions. This becomes an administrative thing that is done by somebody in an office who's not doing CPR and dealing with uh, somebody's crying kid and those kinds of things because um, I think that if you are large enough there, if there are two or three or four of these calls a day, that um, it really should be considered to be delegated out to some administrative person who is clinically um, active and understands the consequences of these tests, but it is removed from the heat of the battle of the emergency department. Yeah, you made a good point, Rick, about the fact that we're all busy. I can't tell you the number of times I came on the afternoon shift. And there's the pile of, of x-ray follow-ups and, and, and culture follow-ups to be called on. And they said, well, we just didn't get a chance to do it exactly. on the day shift. Right. So now I'm coming on the busier afternoon shift, and I'm going to get a chance to do it? That's exactly Good. right. That's exactly what I'm referring to. I've seen this happen over and over and over again. And people are well-intended, but these are not necessarily the people who – ought be doing this. The other thing I wanted to bring up is um, we had the policy of initialing and dating every x-ray report that came back. Obviously, that's a little tedious, but that, and, and it wasn't the copy. It had to be the original so that when that went down to medical records, your initial and uh, date were on there indicating that you had reviewed that um, I guess in some ways that could be viewed as potentially dangerous because you've already now incriminated yourself as, yeah, I did it, I saw it, but I didn't, but uh, it, it got lost in the cracks. I'm sorry. Yeah, um, if you recall that first twenty million dollar case, the the physician did that exactly. They initialed the report, then they noted that they faxed it, and and they ended up not being held liable. Uh, 
Um, I know at our place, uh, I agree, I wanted to agree with both of you, at our place uh, the next morning, the chief resident gets all those reports. They're sitting down administratively, have no other concerns in the world except closing these loops. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention that um, hasn't been mentioned is working out uh, lab triggers. Certain levels get an immediate call. I, I have a case just recently from Maryland where a patient like lived in Texas or somewhere. Their doctor increased their Coumadin dose. They then moved to California or somewhere else. Uh, they came into the ED saying, I've been having headaches for a month. Uh, the ED physician didn't feel like it was significant, referred them to a neurologist, knew that they were on Coumadin, ordered an INR just for the neurologist to have. The INR was extremely elevated, um, but there was no call made. The physician did not follow up that kind of courtesy lab draw. Of course, it was high. Of course, the patient died from an intracranial event, and there was an award for four hundred thousand. But so ha the, there was no lab trigger for a call for an INR that was elevated. So that's a good thing to have in your hospitals. You know, that's interesting but, because um, I believe that the Joint Commission requires labs to individually establish thresholds for you know this. Um, urgent, immediate callback. So that would be very unusual that you would get a high yeah. INR that did not trigger some kind of emergency communication from the lab to the, um, to the ER. Well, here's, oh, uh, I think it's Murphy's Law. Like this one, the INR was 4.8. And I, I bet the trigger was 5.0. It's going to be Murphy's <laughs> Law, where it was just under. <laughs> you know. Well, a lot of the x-ray departments have, have also moved in this direction. Where uh, Last place I worked, uh, the, uh, if they saw a small bowel obstruction, they didn't send over a report. They had to talk to the emergency doc on the phone. If they saw an intracranial bleed, if they saw, you know, a widened mediastinum, there are all kinds of things which prompted that they they not only sent the piece of material, the um, report over, but they are, were required to speak to the doctor uh, on duty. And I think that's that's the way it ought to be. Well, the best radiologist really the Hanson. yeah. The best radiologist at our hospital, the one who is uh, loved by everybody. He will call to the ER every abnormal, every abnormal, whether it's a you know a crack this or that, because the fact is that the abnormals are a relatively small percentage of the X-rays taken, and um, so if you had a broken ankle, he would call it. If you had a pneumonia, he would call it. No matter what it was, you could while he was working, you would not have to worry about that. And I think it was. I don't know if it was. I don't know whether it was a matter of policy. But it was, frankly, it should have been a matter of policy. They don't. They have the time to do it. It, it gets the report back to you immediately. Because right now, we went from the frying pan into the fire. In the past, when a patient came back from X-ray, their X-ray envelope with the new X-rays on it was put on the counter. So all you had to do is look at the counter and say, "Okay, the X-rays are back." Now you have to go over to that stupid pack system. You don't know whether the answer is back there or not. You have to put in your secret code. Uh, look them up and find, oh, no, it hasn't been read yet kind of thing. Yeah, so, yeah. Ricky, Ricky, before you start taking off on this, PAX has a lot of good advantages. And uh, Yeah, but one of them is it doesn't tell you when the frickin' report's back. Uh, actually, uh, they can, you can get that now. They will actually uh, uh, time 
when the report was sent back to the emergency department. I need a red light to go on, a bell to ring. (laughs) Ricky, you're admitting now to being old and sort of Pavlovian in how you respond to things. I mean, uh, come on, give us, give us a break for being able to do a, f- a few things, correct? But uh, we're, st- we're horning in on Greg's time here. Greg, more from your paper. Well, the other, the other legal concept that comes into play, we talked about contributory negligence where the patient's part of the problem. Um, that's kind of morphed into another concept called comparative fault. Uh, in the old days are states that truly believe in contributory negligence. If the patient does anything wrong, they are not allowed to sue. And the uh, later courts have said, you know, maybe they made a mistake, but the doctor made a bigger mistake. We're not going to stop them from recovering something when the doctors made a mistake too. So a lot of states will go off of a thing called comparative negligence, uh, you know, comparative fault where they try to label a percentage, like the patient was 30% at fault, the physician was 70%, so on 100,000, the patient only gets 30% or 30,000. And in this case, you often have a triangle of a primary ED doc and patient, and that comparative fault can can really come into play. Yeah, the ED doc should have done this, but the primary physician should have done that. You pay 10%, you pay 60%. Patient, you know, is responsible for forty. So. I'm involved right now in a South Carolina case in which there are seven physicians who interacted with this patient, and they're all trying to figure out to settle this case who's going to pay what percentage of who did what when, and and assuming that the patient themselves was responsible for part of this as well. I mean, this can get incredibly complex, and uh, we always forget that. There is nobody who's in charge of ultimate truth and beauty in these cases. Every attorney is charged with protecting their pot of gold and fighting tooth and nail to say, no, we're 5%, not 7%. Um, I've seen huge amounts of money expended in these kinds of fights. Would it would have been just cheaper to settle the case and divide it up later? Right. Most states will say that if a patient is 50% or more, like it's more their fault than anyone else's, that they can't pursue the case. Some states will say whatever percentage the patient is still allowed to recover. Let's say the patient's 98% responsible. Some states will still allow them to seek that 2% of what's due them. So, yep. Hey, Greg, in yep. the case that you had with the seven doctors, um, does that bring up the issue of uh, is one attorney representing all seven doctors because they're all in the same ER group, or um, that's not likely? But I mean, uh, uh, but is this a place where everybody should have their own attorney, even if the two or three of them are colleagues in the same ER group? Well, the in that seven, there are two. Uh, check that three. Uh, uh, from the emergency group because it staffed more than one hospital in that, air, that area. They had one attorney, but the neurosurgeon, this had, this was a low back pain case, which means it was what, Rick? What spinal, was the disease? Spinal epidural abscess. Or- Absolutely. Uh, and of course, it's slowly progressive. They've made multiple visits. They've been to an orthopod. They've been to a family practitioner. Only the emergency docs had 
had a, one attorney, um, and they they settled their uh, inner Nicene warfare amongst themselves. But everybody else, including the hospital, uh, had separate counsel. And uh, when I gave a deposition, I'm sitting in a room there. I bet the cost per hour of me sitting in that room was probably $5,000 an hour. Uh, when you look at travel and everything else, to sit there and listen to the deposition. Mm-hmm. Mm. Got to remember, none of this is set up for the benefit of doctors. And even, even defense counsel, um, they only get paid if they bill. And so uh, um, I trust none of them, and that's just sort of I, – I, maybe I've become cynical in my old age, but uh, if they can hold a deposition in Ocho Rios on a Friday and spend the rest of the weekend there and I get stuck with a bill, it's going to happen. Well, Greg and Greg, um, let's kind of see if we can bring this home. Uh, are there any other concrete suggestions that you guys have to limit the risk of this problem occurring? Or can we summarize kind of the, you know, Greg Moore, can you maybe give us the, uh, the take-home message here? Yeah, I, I mean, I had, you know, the again, my concept is like the physician, the patient, and you are a triangle. And the more lines of that triangle you can close in, the less risk you have. Uh, try to guarantee a mechanism that at least one of them gets the information and then document that you've done it um, on incidental findings or findings that you're aware of when you have the patient in front of you put them in the discharge instructions you need to follow up this lab you need to get this taken care of and uh, always offer yourself up call me back if there's problems getting a hold of someone uh, call me in two days if you want this result uh, those, those are the those are the key things having a system and following the system Greg? Yeah, I yeah, I, I think that um, name. I want to know who you spoke to. Doctor Smith's secretary is not Doctor Smith, so don't say uh, uh, family practice uh, notified. I don't know what that means. If I spoke to Doctor Smith of family practice at this time, he will call the patient as well, or uh, he is aware of the situation. I love that. I can defend that till the cows come home. Uh, yeah, I then, want it dated then, and timed. Then you're going to bring in those key defenses, contributory negligence, comparative fault. Then you're going to say, it's not my fault. It's their fault. Greg, when, you were, when we were talking uh, before we started the recording, um, you mentioned that uh, you had probably 10 plus cases that you were aware of um, in this genre. Yeah, I think I think we've covered all the categories, so I, I wouldn't hammer more individual well, cases. Uh, but I've seen 10 to 15 of these within the last year, year and a half, arising, you know, mostly out of the emergency department, some out of physician offices. Not a single one has the defense won. There's always been a settlement or a payout by a jury. Yeah, that was the point I was getting at. This is not something where the traditional – statistics apply in terms of doctors winning the case in this case doctors uniformly lose the case yeah exactly you know there are areas where it's a dead nuts loser for a doctor if they ever cut uh catch you changing the record modifying the record 
doctoring the record, so to speak, uh, you might as well just open the book because if a jury has to hear that story, you'd be slammed so badly. Uh, in fact, I, quite frankly, I never see them go to a jury because nobody wants to sit there and have uh, people judge you for, for dishonesty because it isn't right. going anywhere. I'm not familiar with the term a dead nuts. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Funny your wife is, Rick. But uh, <laughs> oh, that was good, Greg. That was surprisingly quick for you. <laughs> All right, listen, guys. I think that um, unless there's anything further here, I wanted to thank you, Greg, very much for uh, Greg Moore for taking the time with us. And coming on to Risk Management Monthly again, I think that this is an extraordinarily uh, important topic. We uh, see this coming up over and over and over. You would think that emergency physicians would really understand this, but even though I think they're well-intended, I think some of the systems that are in place are just way too uh, casual, way too sloppy, and... Um, we get away with it 99% of the times, but there are other times when people are hurt because we're not uh, careful enough. Yeah, I agree. Everyone would say, oh, yeah, of course, but it just it tends to happen. And it's it's actually almost an explosive epidemic. The lawyers have latched onto this, and they just love this area because it's a, it's a guaranteed payout. Absolutely. You know, there's nothing like writing two letters – and, and getting a check. I mean, it's it, it's the simplest form of law. And Greg, I'd like to thank you too for uh, I sleep better at night knowing you're def- you're taking care of those people who are defending the country. Yeah, they they are awesome. They are sacrificing so much for us, and uh, it's part of what makes my job purposeful. Yeah, actually, I I would think that working in that environment is uh, very gratifying. Actually, yeah, it That's is right. it's awesome. And the toughest headache to treat is a military dependent's headache when that dependent is out of the country, correct? Right. (laughs) Greg, thanks very much. We appreciate it. We're going to sign off. Okay, it's my pleasure. Okay, Greg, let's do some letters. The first letter is from Robert Sevier. Sevier. He wrote about our interview with um, Mike Kessler, our plaintiff attorney, uh, last month, and um, he thought it was. I liked that interview, by the way. Well, actually, I thought it was good. We've had a number of doctors who have uh, written in and said how sincere and candid uh, that interview was, and I I do want to thank Mike. Actually, as a matter of fact, those of you who are going to our, our Hawaii course in um, Maui this coming, um, I I don't know actually when the date is, but you you all get it get these. Um, notices from us but in any case Mike has agreed actually uh, to come and talk at that conference and uh, I was thinking of taking one of our hour and a half panels and inviting him to participate he'll be over there when we're there and um, he's become very very um, friendly I think we've become friends just just, uh, just by doing this but in any case Rick he- you don't become friends with a cobra okay <laughs> no this guy's uh, a nice guy he's he a is generally a nice, nice guy, guy. By the way, it is February 27th through March 2nd. It will be in Maui, and uh, both Rick and I will be faculty there. We'd love to see you. Absolutely. In any case, Robert basically uh, talked about the New Zealand system because one of the things that came up in our conversation with uh, Mike was that there is this tendency for justice to be denied 
at the two extremes of age, children who die as a result of malpractice and the elderly who die as a result of malpractice because once you're dead, if you're a child, you're not worth anything, and if you're elderly, you're not worth anything. And so he brought up the New Zealand system. Greg, you're familiar with that, where they basically differentiate um, people who have been hurt by the medical process, and they get an award as determined by the state um, and they have a, a, a sheet that takes into consideration all these things and say, okay, here's what you're going to get paid out. And they separately deal with the physician in terms of peer review. Did you screw up? Do you, do you need to have some kind of um, um, training or something like that? So they pull apart the two issues so that everybody gets their day in court. I uh... I spoke to Robert on the phone about this. Uh, the I don't necessarily like to have every thought in my head put on in email. Uh, even Bill Gates couldn't get rid of email. But the one nice thing about the New Zealand system, it is not fault-based. Nobody right. has to be found guilty of anything. They have reasonable people guided by physicians who say, well, there may have been a slightly different outcome if we'd done this or that. This may have been prevented. Uh, and when they come up with an award, it's, it's based on something called sufficiency, which is nobody gets $20 million in New Zealand. <laughs> there may not be $20 million in New Zealand, and they don't think in terms of the lottery like we do. They look at their, their life situation and ask this question. What income level or what money level would be required to maintain their reasonable lifestyle? Uh, and that's how they come up with the money. And I think it's infinitely fairer than what we do in this country. See, here you've got to find a villain. You've got to lie, cheat, and steal. Uh, it's not the way to resolve human problems. Although in the United States, there is this idea that you have your right to your day in court. But the fact of the matter is, is that you really don't, because if an attorney decides that there's not enough money into this case, it doesn't matter whether you've been harmed or whether you've been, uh, whether you're right or not, because you're not going to get your day in court. Now, the other thing I wanted to bring up, Greg, is that there is a in New Zealand there are some other ways to compensate people. You don't have to give them ten million; you could give them like one million and plus four hundred sheep. I mean, that's one. <laughs> That's one yeah. of the, is that like the, is that like the seventy two virgins or something? Uh, if you not die quite, in the not quite. I don't know. What, right. I don't know what the conversion ratio is between virgins <laughs> and sheep, but there, I'm sure there is some conversion. And I and I hope you don't know, Rick. I I, I don't want to debate that here on the show. But I I think that the, the that a lot of the world has looked at this quite differently than the than the uh, competitive adversarial way of solving the problem in New Zealand. Anybody who's got a complaint, uh, and, and that number is quite low because most people are reasonably happy with their health care, but they can have it looked at, and somebody from the state themselves does the investigation and presents the materials. So it's not whether somebody has a chance of making a huge payday, and I, th I think uh, Mike was real clear about that. He said, you know what? If there ain't any money in this thing, how can I afford to take it? Yeah, he had I mean, mentioned that some yeah. of his cases have involved up to a half a million dollars in terms of discovery and, and expert witnesses and this, that, and the other. And yes, his experiences, right? right? And, and so you can, uh, you can see why 
this system is set up to help everybody except patients who are, are genuinely harmed and number two, the doctor who has to pay for his own malpractice policy or the group that does. Um, it's a system where the return, there was a very good study done here in Michigan uh, about the Michigan uh, sort of bedpan mutual insurance company. And they said about 18%, between 17 and 18% of the monies you pay in as an as a, a insured physician will ever get to a patient. Mm -hmm. The other 82% is dissipated by the grease of the system. That's attorney's fees, expert witnesses, actuarials, uh, all kinds of well-wishers and fun seekers and hanger-ons who have turned this into a, a continuous source of income instead of a way of aiding people who were genuinely harmed by the system. It's, I'm just telling you, it's fundamentally wrong. And there's nothing going to change it in the United States except uh, uh, some Band-Aids, like the idea of limiting caps on pain and suffering, the idea of changing the uh, rules of um, evidence whereby you need to go to gross negligence versus something else which has been done in a few states. And I think actually, you know, maybe I've understated it. Those things have helped. But, I'm, you know, I must tell you, and I don't know that this is going to be very popular, I am concerned about people who are heart, hurt in the system who are precluded from having their day in court. I think that it's not, it's not a very fair system. Rick, for 30 years I've been presenting, 35 years, I've been presenting cases to audiences doctor audiences, and I'll just say, uh, malpractice, no malpractice, should we give them money, no money, invariably, the doctors hit those cases right on the head, say, yep, that's malpractice, and they gave more money than the juries did. Um, uh, you know, doctors aren't stupid or greedy or mean. Uh, when presented with a problem, they could solve this. Uh you know, while the country is going through this phase, and while we're recording this, it was uh, yesterday uh, they took their vote about uh, raising the debt ceiling. While we're watching the dissolution of a once great country, we should talk about changing some of these things which basically were never written on a stone tablet. Hammurabi never came up with this kind of malpractice system, and we need to talk about it. Although uh, in the Obama uh, plan, plan, as far as I know, there's nothing really related to uh, tort reform. Of course not. It, <laughs> how is he going to bite the hand that feeds him? I, I, I mean, I understand that, and I'm not blaming him. No, sure. What I'm saying is it's the fundamental basis of a system which has gone crazy. You know, it, it was interesting is that uh, the Japanese – which are about little less than half our population, have one-twentieth the number of attorneys. They resolve things differently. Was that and, uh, they, like, have a sword fight or something like that? Uh, well, I, I, they just, uh, yeah. They, they, they Do the right thing shamed. and just kill yourself? Yeah, that, or th they actually have ways of coming together to solve different situations. Uh, we've decided in this country that... Uh, uh, we're going to sue every chance we get. 
I, I mean, the ridiculous things we sue for in this country, I think, are just bizarre. And 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 uh, it's it's clearly unique to America, but it's it's made us non-competitive in a lot of areas. Let's move on to uh, Jeff Keller's um, uh, email. It's pretty straightforward. Uh, he yeah. is concerned about people suing who are being uh, sedated <laughs> against their will. And Greg, I've heard you talk about this Ugh. all the time. I, you know, as people get more and more drunk, they seem to learn more and more about the law. Yes, they do. <laughs> and so <laughs> I'm going to show you. I'm going to um, show you. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. We've talked about this before. That the what jury is going to, first of all, who's going to take these people's cases? They have no money. Number two, what are the damages that occurred? There are no damages. And number three, what kind of jury is going to um, go against a doctor who said, you know, the patient was threatening the, the staff. The patient was a danger to himself. I put it down here in the chart. This seems like uh, nothing that anybody ought to lose any sleep about. You just need to document the, the reason that you're sedating this, pa this patient, and I think that you, that's it. It's done. You know what, Rick? It's the documentation. If it says the guy's swinging, the guy's doing this, the guy's doing that, um, he's fighting with the police. You know what? I've never seen a case like that even brought. Occasionally, you'll see something because there's no documentation, but if you've got that the guy is dangerous to hell for others. Here's the other thing I'm seeing now. So, you know, local Channel 7 Action News says, oh, it's a travesty. The guy in the ER got a taser, got tasered. Well, shit, would you rather them say something like uh, he got a 9mm to his head? You know, do you think a 44 caliber uh, bullet is better than a taser? I mean, come on. Uh, you know, most people saying these things have never done anything real for a living. Those of us who have been threatened to be beaten up by, by uh, motorcycle gang members uh, understand the, <laughs> the advantage of the occasional taser. Um, we had a great, we had a great uh, setup at, at uh, Wayne County General Hospital when I was a medical student. And uh, whenever we had a problem, we always had Wayne County sheriffs there. The curtain would close. We'd hear some sounds. Curtain would open, and we'd record contusions noted. And you know what? System worked pretty damn well. Uh, it, whenever I see this stuff, if you as a physician allow your staff to be put at jeopardy and don't take some action, then you are liable. Because if there's a bunch of nursing notes that say patient threatening, patient hitting, patient doing this or that, and you don't do something – then I think you're at much greater risk than if you take an action. You know, there was a long column on the front page of the L.A. Times about two days ago. I guess there was no news to put in there except uh, <laughs> the, uh, uh, the budget thing. But in any case, there was a long, long, long uh, article about how dangerous it is to work in an emergency department. And, um, you know... Frankly, a lot of that stuff is very self-serving, but they had all this data about how people are threatened in the emergency department, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I, you know, I've seen some of that, but I think, frankly, it's substantially overstated and, frankly, self-serving. And I know I didn't win one friend by saying that, but I just, 
I just think that this beating your chest about how dangerous the ER is is uh, gets uh, overdone. But in any case, he well, also... Well, it's situationally asked, dependent, Rick. It, you know, if you're at certain emergency departments, it is much more dangerous than in others. Right. And I mean, those there ERs, are country USC, they have all armed guards all over the place. These are not, right. you know, the rent guard at all. These are county sheriffs, people who've got real guns and real tasers. If anybody acts up there, you know, that's not, uh, it's not going to happen. Let's get back right. to one other thing that Jeff said. He extrapolated this up a bit by saying that he invo he's involved with taking care of some prisoners in a jail setting. And he said, does that change anything in terms of uh, this issue about restraint. He also said, which I don't think, I think the answer is no, but he also said he had heard, and I don't know whether you had heard this, that it's um, chemical restraint is considered riskier than physical uh, constraints. And I don't think that that's true at all. But had you heard anything about that? No. In fact, um, I think that most of us use a combination of restraints. Uh, first of all, my experience and, and having never seen a restraint case of somebody brought from a prison, because most of those people aren't drunk. Most of those people have already dealt with the system, and they're actually quite well behaved in my experience. Uh, it's the 19-year-old who is uh, full of booze and, uh, and testosterone, who's much bigger threat than somebody brought from Jackson the Jackson uh, State Prison here in uh, Michigan, which is, by the way, the world's largest uh, prison. Uh, we have 5,000 guys in, <laughs> incarcerated there. Um, good work. They, good work, yeah, the best we can do. And, and they tend to be pretty well behaved because, first of all, they send a, a, a prison guard with them, and they put up with zero crap. Yeah, that's exactly uh, right. And, and they know that when they get back there, if they've been a bad boy, they'll beat the crap out of them. No, they won't get supper. No supper. <laughs> no supper, right. <laughs> right. All right, let's move on here. Um, so I, I've just never had a problem with those guys. Yeah. Uh, hey, listen, I got another letter here from um, David Esler. David is the doc who uh, wrote uh, a month or so ago where he asked the question about should there be different standards for different doctors working in the emergency department, whether they be um, family physicians who work in rural emergency departments or they're board certified or this, that, or the other thing? And I, uh, the, the, the short answer to that was uh, it was uh, your re re routine response about you know the standard of care. It was a similar doctor of like training or something to that effect, right? Right, exactly. Right. So here's... Um, Michael basically also was one of the docs who um, was very impressed with um, our plaintiff interview, his candor and eloquence. And uh, he also mentioned how it was really telling about how economics drove the choices of cases to take. David has two questions. He says, how do, how do you chart defensively as opposed to practicing defensively? And that triggered us to come up with a list which I don't know if we're going to have time to do uh, this time, but we, we've come up with a list of about 20 things generically, generically that you can do in terms of your charting to limit your risk, which we believe substantially. It's not specifically directed towards chest pain or abdominal pain, but it is just generic approach to the chart, and we'll get, it, get to that. And the second thing he mentioned was 
this article in the Globe and Mail, which is this Canadian paper about hot tubbing of experts. Have you ever heard that term before, Greg? Hot tubbing? No, I, 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 you know, I, I saw that. I was very impressed. I've, you know, I've hot tubbed before, but I've never. No, I've done it with a, a lawyer too. So I, I uh, but they certainly wasn't in asking me any questions. I, I, I just wasn't aware of this. Well, anyway, he notes in this paper article from Canada that in Australia they are hot tubbing experts, whereby they bring in in front of the judge and the lawyers the two experts on either side simultaneously, so that they can go back and forth, hear each other's uh, remarks counter those remarks with their uh, with their point of view rather than hearing them serially you get to hear one guy for one day and then you hear the next guy for the next day and you could make it would make a lot of sense that having a conversation back and forth back and forth with questions being asked by the judge and the attorneys would be a much more efficient way to ascertain uh, the uh, the reality rather than serially doing this but it, Rick- it, strains of uh, are coming up in my head. What we've got here is dueling experts. Right. Uh, is, is this the way to do it? Well, I'm not sure that putting them across from each other, and there are some, I don't want to be impolite about this, but some nationally known plaintiff whores who I've been up against many times, would that give them honesty? Would that give them integrity? Well, no, act, not necessarily. To slap them in the face. Right? But basically, it gives you a chance to counter that r- ridiculous statement that they made immediately and say, here why that statement is untrue. You know, it would be become a, in essence, a debate uh, between the experts where the lawyers and judge basically are kind of um, involved in asking the questions and assessing. You know, who's got the best answer here? Well, but but you've got to remember, the lawyers and the judge don't get to decide. The only people who get to vote on who had the best show uh, are the 12 people picked randomly from the voters lists who become jurors. No, I got and, you. And, and, and the problem with that is maybe you've got a guy who's a great speaker on one side or the other, an eloquent debater and he just may lie through his teeth <laughs> that then you have to depend on the on the daubert uh verdicts and things like that but um it's interesting but i'd want to i'd want to actually see it work a few times since nowhere in this country does that does that go on but uh rick can't you see the problem that the 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 uh handsome guy with the great suit and the uh, and the solid gold Rolex uh, does better than the uh, than than some somebody who may be quite good in the literature, but not as good a presenter. Well, I uh, I could understand that, but my intuition is that the truth would be likely to be more um, consistently delivered by having. The people face to face rather than doing this serially. Let's well, you do- have a you have a Panglossian view of the world, and it's because of your innate goodness and innocence. There Rick. you go. So we'll move on from there. Um, but in any case, I think you ought to do a little wine of the month for us. 
Well, it's very interesting that I've had wonderful response on our last wine of the month, which was La Crema, as you remember. Rick. Yeah, that's my wife's favorite. Yeah, and we have people who are checking at their local Costco's. Uh, if you're in the Midwest, the Costco's don't carry it. But even if you have to pay like retail, I mean, I got two cases of it from uh, from my local wine distributor here, and it was it was cheap. I mean, it was is dirt cheap. Well, uh, it, moving not, toward another it's not great dirt cheap, they're cheap. It's not two dollars a bottle. But Rick, Rick, you're a grown-up. Jeez, you're beyond Annie Greensprings. You're you're beyond uh, two buck check. Um, what I've got here is um, uh, Murphy Goody, uh, uh, Murphy standard spelling dash Goody G O O D E, California Winery, and again the people commenting on this are big names. Their 2009, the Fume, F-U-M-E, is a North Coast wine, and they give it a 90. You know, I'm looking at the list. The wine above it and the wine below it are running 50 bucks a bottle. This is $13 a bottle. If they don't have it in your area, here's the telephone number, 707-431-7644. And they will tell you where to get it distributed. But it, I, I just have to read a couple of words from, from one of the reviews. Um, it offers abundant notes of honeysuckle, orange, marmalade, and is exuberant. It is to be consumed within the next few years, but it will rival anything above or below this price range um, that California produces this year. How do you like that? I like it. I like it. I like it. Thirteen, I like it. 13 bucks a bottle. Well, that's what Come that La Crema is in the neighborhood. That's about thirteen dollars, I think, as well. Well, I think I think the La Crema is uh, last last time I checked on that. It depends on where you where you get it, but uh, you're right. If it's at Costco, you you can get it for about thirteen bucks a bottle. Retail, I paid. Um, even with my case discount, I paid uh, nineteen bucks a bottle. So Ooh. you know, woo! I, Rick, not everybody <laughs> has a Costco carrying this next to them. But even at that price, um, this is good stuff. This is good stuff. I could serve this to to Jerry Hoffman without fear of. Well, no, he didn't. No, it's me it's a white. Yeah. You know, it, it, yeah, it's a white. It's a but, domestic white. Forget it. It's not going to happen. <laughs> but this stuff tastes good. I like it. All right, okay. Greg. Hey, listen. When are you going to come out here? We've we've been doing these on Skype for the last couple of months. I think it's time. Don't yeah, you? you know what? Yeah, I'm going to have to make a trip out. Uh, we'll try and arrange that uh, later this month. But um, good. We we got to say goodbye to the folks here, Rick. All right, that's it. That is the August issue risk management monthly. Thanks to Greg Moore. Thanks to Greg Henry. Talk with you next month. Bye for now. Bye bye.